Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very excited today to be joined by Tony Wan, who is one of the co-founders of Ed Surge, and he's now the head of investor content at Reach Capital. Tony Wan, welcome to Trending in Education. Michael, thank you for having me on. It's yeah. a pleasure to be here and happy Friday. Yeah. And no matter when this is released to our listeners, happy Friday. Uh, yes. Because it should always be a happy Friday. It's happy Friday somewhere. I wanted to, to introduce you a little bit. You've got a really interesting background that I'd love to hear in your own words, your origin story. How did you get to this point in your professional life? Wow. Origin story sounds very epic. I was... I was raised by wolves in the steppes of Mongolia. And then when they were killed by pelt traders, then they adopted me. And yeah, I'm sorry. I'm riff. <laughs> I was enjoying that. That was good. My actual origin story is almost as exciting as wolves in Mongolia, but it's been a bit of a circuitous and I would say serendipitous and fortunate journey. And I mm -hmm. count myself very lucky to have had friends and colleagues who opened doors and took a chance on me mm -hmm. on this journey that led me to where I am today. So long story short, I was born in Hong Kong and I moved to California with my family and spent most of my childhood and upbringing in SoCal. And in college, I was a bit of a history nerd. So I thought I wanted to do academia and went straight to grad school mm -hmm. uh, after my undergraduate studies at uh, UC San Diego. Then about halfway through my master's program, I realized academia wasn't quite a fit for me. So I decided I needed to get a job and do something else. And I was uh, so fortunate that this was 2009, which was great timing for anyone coming out and trying to find a job. I'm just kidding. That was, yeah. you know, the financial crisis. So I ended up working in publishing, but I moonlighted a little bit. It was one of those jobs where, you know, you didn't work for four hours and the other four, you, you had to be in an office, but you weren't yeah. actively, actively doing anything. Sure. So my friends and I built this uh, math game that was inspired by the legend of Zelda. This is a friend who he was doing his master's thesis in education technology at the mm -hmm. time. And this was his math game was his thesis. So we built this game on the side. It was started as a side hobby. Uh, he graduated and we sold this game to a handful of schools. Just to jump in real quick, I'm a big fan of band names, school mascots, and startup company names. So can you share with us the name of what that original uh, startup was? Yeah, the startup was called Lucky Bird Games. Mm -hmm. And the name of the game was called Equasia. Nice. I think somewhere in the Internet Archives, you could probably find the archive web pages of that. Yeah. But, you know, well, it was and, a, I'm also a big adventure. I'm a big fan of portmanteaus as well. I believe that is also a portmanteau. I'll have my crack at editorial staff confirm that. <laughs> but uh, But yes, please continue. So as we were trying to sell this game in, into schools, I had to learn about, hey, what is this ed tech industry? Like, what is this startup world or business? And in the course of just doing some online research and attending some meetups and events, I met Betsy Corcoran, who just started EdSurge yeah. at the time. EdSurge was a newsletter and it was uh, curated content yeah. uh, about the ed tech industry from elsewhere. Yeah. So I signed up for the newsletter. And about four months later, there was an opening for an, an editorial assistant to help find, curate and collect content and edit the newsletter. And I thought that it'd be a cool thing to do to double dip a little bit to yeah. learn and more about the industry as I was trying to build a startup in this yeah. industry. Mm -hmm. um, 
so a couple of years later, this math game thing fizzled, like I think 95% of startups do. Yeah. And so I turned my attention full-time to EdSurge. And at that time, we started doing original reporting and yeah. grew it into a newsroom. Mm-hmm. And there is where my ed tech journalist yeah. hat. You were managing editor there, right? That is the correct title. I started yeah. as an assistant editor. And then as we built the team, we hired reporters and mm -hmm. trained reporters and supported them. And I thought managing editor was the right title. Did you have to wear a trench coat and a fedora or was that optional as managing editor? No, I just, you know, I... I just smoked a lot of cigars and yelled at people yes, yes. and yeah. screaming at people on the phone all the time. <laughs> like J. Jonah Jameson. You were the J. Jonah Jameson. I got I got to do the Marvel Comics uh, reference. But yeah, and, I, and truth be told, as I mentioned prior to starting to record, uh, Ed Surge's uh, newsletter and then its editorial presence over the years was a huge influence on me. It was very much something that, that I got hooked on back in the early 2000s, uh, 2010s. And that was a good time to get into EdTech too, I imagine, because uh, 2012 famously was the year of the MOOC. And there was a lot of conversation at the beginning of the previous decade that educational technology was about to explode onto the scene. The explosion was maybe a little more of a steady trickle depending on how you want to characterize it, through the 2010s. But it was a really interesting space to continue to track. You were still there really right up until recently. And then you made an interesting career choice. That was the other thing I wanted to dig into a little bit with you is uh, the move recently to reach capital. Can you catch folks up on that side of your story? I mean, the funny thing is when I was building out this math game, Lucky Bird Games, and we were doing the startup thing, we pitched to a lot of investors. And one of them was my now colleague, Jennifer Carolyn, who is mm -hmm. a co-founder and general partner at Reach Capital. Mm -hmm. At the time, Reach Capital was a seed fund that was part of the New Schools Venture Fund, which is a nonprofit venture philanthropy. So I had actually met some of these, some of the early investors and entrepreneurs in this industry back yeah. you know, before the pre-ed search days. Jennifer was very polite in passing on the opportunity to invest in The Legend of Zelda plus math. <laughs> you know, I think at EdSurge, I, I, I really enjoyed it because it helped me cover all the excitement that comes with, you know, an emerging space with entrepreneurs that I can relate to. I lived through the ups and downs of trying to run yeah. a business. And in many ways, Ed Surge was a startup, yeah. right, mm -hmm. in itself. Mm -hmm. And it was acquired in 2019 by ISTE, which mm -hmm. is one of the longest and most respected education technology membership associations out there. And so earlier this year, I was coming up on my 10-year mark at Ed Surge, and I was thinking it's been it's been an awesome ride for a decade. I don't think many people stay at any startup, let alone a journalist and startup for a decade. Yeah. I knew I wanted to stay in the industry and do something entrepreneurial. And having covered the business and investment side of this industry, yeah. uh, I started looking, considering the venture capital side yeah. of the ecosystem. The folks at Reach Capital, as I said, are folks I've met and have followed and covered for a while. So them and I called up a couple of other folks I knew and be like, hey, what's what's a day in your life like? Right. <laughs> Contrary to a lot of people's assumptions about venture capital, it's it's all work. I think people think about VCs as you just write checks and you're like making bets and just writing checks. But there's a lot to your point. There's a lot of due diligence, right? Like due diligence, if you break down what those two words mean, that sounds like a lot of work, you know, like to actually figure out the right level of analysis prior to then making mm -hmm. a decision 
yeah. it takes work. And then I imagine there's a lot of work to be done around the decision-making on the investment side that in some ways maybe analogizes to editorial decisions you had to make over the years or even themes yeah. that you saw emerging over the years. Uh, any parallels or insights? At a certain level, there are some things that are similar. And I like to say that I may have left journalism, but the journalist has not, has not left me. Yeah. And so the things that like feel at a very high level conceptually similar is the fact that, hey, as a reporter, you get pitched for stories. Mm-hmm. As an investor, you get pitched for money, yeah. right? We both analyze trends in the market. Mm-hmm. We read reports. We try to find the smartest people in the space and get their perspective. Yeah. We ask questions and do, you know, due diligence yeah. to see if there's any there there. And, you know, at the end of the day, we end up passing on most of the pitches right. that, that come our way, right? So right. You know, in that very like abstract and maybe overly simplified sense, uh, yeah. it, it is similar, but, you know, of course the, the stakes are very different. For sure. Um, I'm learning a lot more about the quantitative analysis mm-hmm. that is involved in investment work. And, yeah. you know, the questions that I would ask about as a business reporter that most companies would not or probably should not disclose to a reporter. Like I now yeah. get to see some of these information and see how they inform our analysis and decisions about what we decided to invest in. And of course, you know, the caveat to having access to these knowledge is that I can't write about them, but you know, sure. that's okay. For me, right. I'm learning. It's a journey of learning as well. Yeah. But you mentioned storytelling and that is a really interesting element that I imagine is a through line where the companies that Reach is investing in, there are socially responsible guidelines built into the actual charter and mission of reach that I think is useful to understand. And then maybe building on that, if there are some stories to be told about where you see the future emerging in educational technology, whether through the companies you're investing in or the themes that you're seeing over the years, I'd love to get a little more of that perspective from you as well. Yeah. So at Reach, to my point that being a VC is a lot more work than people realize. At Reach, we invest in the early stage or we focus most of our activity in the early stage. We invest in companies and entrepreneurs that may not have really necessarily proven or shown really hard evidence, but we believe that there's enough promising signals and trends in the market. And being early stage investors, we are also very hands-on with helping the companies and entrepreneurs build and scale their business to to be successful. And we're not passive investors by any means. We make connections, we organize workshops and just do what it takes to help founders scale and yeah, right, talent. Yeah, just to be clear, I've seen Shark Tank, so I kind of understand <laughs> just a little bit of a joke, but there is the idea that the investors are in there with the entrepreneurs. And that is in fact true. Successful entrepreneurs, successful startups have more engaged support typically than just trying to do it alone. You're not just doing it to get the money. You're also getting a supporter and a partner who's invested in your success. Yeah. And I think an extra thing that really may be unique is that I think that across our team, we have a lot of former classroom teachers. Mm -hmm. I think we have just as many master's degrees in education as MBAs. Mm -hmm. And so I think the diversity of perspectives and the lived experience, not just as former entrepreneurs, but as former classroom teachers, 
It adds an element of perspective and diligence in some of our investment meetings. Mm-hmm. And we firmly believe in applying an equity lens to our work mm-hmm. and that the solutions that we are investing in are things that help to narrow the gaps in, mm-hmm. in access. And instead of tools that are just only accessible and affordable by people who can afford to pay for them. Yeah, I was struck by that. And the website is reachcapital.com if you're interested in reach capital. Also, uh, Tony, if folks want to follow you on Twitter, or if they want to track what you're thinking about what you're doing, where should they go? You can follow me on Twitter at Tony Wan, which is my first and last name, T-O-N-Y-W-A-N. Yeah. Um, You know, be forewarned, I don't always tweet about education or even sensible things. I actually last night, it was funny. I I learned that Kanye West has a new album coming out. Uh-huh. And one of the songs on his new album is called No Child Left Behind. <laughs> and I was like, huh. <laughs> NCOB making a comeback in 2021, yeah. courtesy right. of Kanye West in right. his new album. That I don't think anyone predicted that. This is the type of cutting edge content that, that our listeners are seeking out, Tony. So thank you for sharing that. If you're interested, at Tony Wan on Twitter. It's good to get a window into people's thoughts. Why silo your humanity into just one interest? But folks can't filter. Maybe they shouldn't be on Twitter to begin with. Getting back to the storytelling, we did want to understand better some of the stories of the companies you've worked with or some of the technologies that are emerging in educational technology. And then the stories to be told these days are all transformed by the crazy year and a half, two years that we've been living through from 2020 into 2021. There's a lot of reporting, a lot of attention being paid to education and uh, in particular educational investment in light of the pandemic and the desire to make up for the quote unquote learning loss to help accelerate educational outcomes. The focus on access that you were talking about is very much something that has been elevated in the collective zeitgeist over the past year and a half. What themes are you seeing emerge now that you've hopped over to the reach capital side? It's a very interesting time to be taking some perspective in the venture space. What are you noticing these days? Are there any trends that are emerging that are capturing your attention? Yeah. So the past year or the past, what, 15 months, I lost count. We all went on this, the world, I think writ large went on this forced experiment with online and remote learning and it really exposed some infrastructural issues mm-hmm. and inequities like devices and, and broadband that yeah some of these fundamentals that you need to have in place to, to continue learning and i think that we've made some progress in better being able to provide the devices and the internet access in order for edtech to exist and yeah. be used and so that's been one of the challenges and I would say promising progress that's been made mm-hmm. that you need in order, in order to have the foundation for digital uh, and online learning. Like yeah, it's that. like the, the base level Maslowian needs of yeah. devices and broadband. If you don't have these minimal necessities, we've all been forced into that by virtue of the, the pandemic. So yeah, so that's a trend. And we also, so as, assuming we overcome that hurdle, we also saw, I think areas where I think ed tech worked well and where it doesn't. And assuming a tech infrastructure, infrastructure was in place, one of the next big challenges that teachers reported was student motivation, right? How do you keep like kids engaged? And there are a lot of ed tech tools out there that I would 
describe it as more, I would say, passive tools in the yep. sense that, hey, you're watching a video and answering some multiple choice questions that they get the job done, but they fail to really capture the human and personal dimensions of what teaching and learning entails. And the flip side, that's why we saw a lot of tools in our portfolio and also outside. The ones that kind of facilitate more live and meaningful interactions mm-hmm. uh, and activities, those are the ones that, you know, we saw a huge spike in, in usage of for marketplaces like OutSchool, yeah. which is a marketplace for education, but also activities, teachers want to, you know, partake in. Yeah. And it's live online. But when I was at Kaplan, that was the program that I was very much focused on developing for them is synchronous. There's been this notion out there for many years, maybe we watched too many Terminator movies in the nineties, but this idea that the robots were going to take over for us and that the equivalent of a robot in terms of instruction was asynchronous video. So there is still this fear that real-time human connection will be supplanted by technology in some way. I think in some ways the pandemic pushed the pendulum Back towards the way. The yeah human, the human the human emotions and connections and feedback and just the presence right yeah. there's yeah. there are some things that are just I would say intangible and perhaps unquantifiable about just human to human learning. Yeah. That is it's just a part of the experience that I think technology alone just cannot supplant yeah or, and, or, and or replace and for me tony i've been known to burst into song on occasion in honor of the late great whitney houston and say i get social emotional baby but social emotional as a trend that's another one that really has taken off i saw even within your portfolio it's not just the quote-unquote harder more cognitive skills that are part of what reach is looking at there are also more social emotional and communication even data literacy, media literacy, the whole portfolio of skills and the way people think about education is evolving, right? I think one of the biggest new frontiers and opportunities is going to be around mental health and Mm -hmm. social emotional learning. With the pandemic and the loss of social connections and actual lives, it's really taking a toll on mental health, not just for kids, but I know for teachers who just their burnout and stress just went through the roof. Mm -hmm. And I think mental health in many ways was already like a hidden pandemic before COVID, but now we are seeing that in the spotlight as reflected in, I think, rising reports of depression and suicide attempts, so very real and grisly things that, you know, us as a society, we may have been reluctant to acknowledge or surface, but seeing the attention and spotlight on this, as well as this being a subject for entrepreneurs and startups to tackle, I think that's a really promising and encouraging sign. Um, yeah. It's such an important and worthwhile challenge to go after. Yeah. And I mentioned data literacy and media literacy, 21st century literacies. I don't know what language makes the most sense to describe it, but it does feel like Beyond the traditional core curriculum, financial literacy is another one. There are new needs that are emerging, and it feels like in some ways that collides with the traditional educational models that are out there. Where do you think the venture space, the entrepreneurship, what role can it play in moving us to a better tomorrow? I think that with things like media literacy and financial literacy, what excites me is that not only are they very practical and pragmatic skills to have. But 
I think they offer an, an opportunity to break down some of the historical subject barriers that exist. That hey, you go to math class, right. you go to science class, you go to history class. I think with the emergence of some of these new literacy skills, you need to be critical about how you analyze the media mm-hmm. or understand how like personal and business finance works in this economy for your own well-being. I think yeah. these are opportunities to transcend what have previously we've thought of as you know their own individual subjects. And mm-hmm. perhaps at the early grades, it makes sense to build the foundational building blocks. But as you get older, maybe into middle and high school, you realize that in life, all these things come together. Yeah, as a father of a two-year-old, I did want to also mention that Reach's portfolio does uh, touch early education. And I will say my wife and I loved uh, Love Every Baby, the Love Every Company, which is also one that Reach is invested in, where they send you a developmentally appropriate learning package in the mail. It really got us through the pandemic in a lot of ways as parents of a young child. It it is interesting to talk about the full span. Love Every Baby starts really with infants, spanning that all the way into lifelong learning. It is something we've tried to do on Trending in Education. It's where we try to find broader trends that actually cut across the different slices. Can you talk a little bit about the the breadth and reach of reach? Because I think it's a pretty interesting perspective to have that range within your portfolio. Yeah, so Reach's roots have been in K-12 and higher ed, but we've really started broadening the the scope of learning and teaching and educational services that we believe are, you know, important and relevant to just human development on the whole. So early childhood, there's plenty of both research and now in recent years, media attention and dare I say, bipartisan support for the importance of Head Start programs and yeah. for support for young families and learners, um, an appreciation and recognition that so much of the, the brain develops before, what, like the age three yeah. uh, or something. Yeah. I, I might it's, also, it's also, it seems like Scandinavia just shames us into focusing on this stuff too. There are just parts of the world where they're just getting early childhood education right. And mm-hmm. when it is done well, it opens up opportunities for flourishing that frequently are withheld. And that's why yeah. the combination of focusing on early childhood development and then also on access is another really interesting way to broaden yeah. your, your scope. And it ties into economic development families too, mm-hmm. because one of the reasons why a lot of people didn't pursue employment was because of childcare during the pandemic. They right. had to stay at home and take care of the kids either because there was a lack of childcare providers in their area, or perhaps they had to close down um, for a little bit during pandemics. The connections between early childhood education extends beyond just, you know, the education of the kid, but into the family and their well-being and economic mobility and opportunities for the working adults as well. It's all connected and it's cheesy and perhaps unhelpfully broad to say, but education is the thread that regardless of what age you are or what stage in your career you are it is you know the thread that i think ties a lot of um our personal and professional livelihoods together yeah this economy yeah you're preaching to to the choir here a little bit but i also feel like the pandemic and the the transformative years that we've gone through in the last year and a half i i think did induce a bit of a paradigm shift in terms of the collective understanding of what education is and where meaning is created in our lives, where where value is created in our lives. And I, I think there's a much more profound recognition of the centrality of education 
in just the, the collective experience, plus the opportunity, which is why I'd love to maybe get a little bit of your perspective on your prognosis uh, for for the, the near to long term. What do you see on the horizon for education, you know, as someone who was tracking trends and trying to get out ahead of stuff with EdSurge for 10 years, and now you're trying to understand where smart and thoughtful capital is going to get out ahead of education trends. Anything new emerging? Any ways in which you're digesting and synthesizing and looking at, at what's on the horizon? In the short term, this upcoming school year may be just as rocky for some states, and it's going to beget the need for the continuation of remote learning services that I do think are going to be better. More schools have the infrastructure and support needed. In the longer term, as we talked about earlier, we've seen the limitations of what EdTech can do in teaching and learning. So I am a firm believer that technology and all the hype cycle is going to swing back to the other pendulum where we need more human-centered technology like innovations. A good example is this idea of personalized learning, right? Mm -hmm. Big buzzword. I'm got to a point where I got really sick of seeing that, that, that word in press releases everywhere. But personalized learning, at least a recent modern concept, it traces back to this research paper from what the, the 80s called the Two Sigma Problem. Mm-hmm. And it was a researcher named Benjamin Bloom who wrote this paper, essentially stating that like one-to-one tutoring had the biggest impact on student learning. Yeah, And so that kind of formed, I think, the pedagogical or theoretical framework for a lot of this personalized learning trend, mm. which is manifest in a lot of software that you saw, like some of the software where you just watch videos and answer questions. It manifests in a lot of online tutoring yeah. services. Like e-tutor, cognitive tutors, those kinds of things. Yes. Um, and even marketplaces where you like match up with someone online. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the problems is that a lot of these tutoring platforms, the ones that are like very computer-based, were not very personalized. You're just watching a screen or some of the ones that were live and synchronous were only accessible for those who can afford to pay for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what we're seeing, and there's a company in our portfolio called Paper, which is working with school districts to provide 24-7 access to tutors. Mm, so mm, mm-hmm. they are, I think, making really promising headway on realizing this uh, promise of personalized learning in the, in form, in the form of personalized tu- personal tutors, Yeah, but at a scale that feels equitable because you're going through school districts to make it available to students and families regardless of their income and backgrounds. That's, that's heartening to me. Yeah. And it also speaks to some of the shifts in the nature of work, which is another thing that I always love to talk about where it does feel like there'll be more opportunities to teach online for those of us who have the wherewithal to lean into that, developing that skill set, because there will Mm -hmm. be more need for individualized tutoring and for externalizing of different types of expertises. Mm -hmm. I, I am somewhat hopeful particularly around informal educators, formal educational structures, particularly K-12 and higher ed, where where the majority of our formal education happens, there's some rigidity there around those models that I think they might have trouble with the speed of their cycle times to develop new Mm -hmm. and and transformative things. And that's Mm -hmm. where I always find the connection to the venture space and the entrepreneurial space to have a real upside. As we're getting closer to conclusion here Tony, like, where do you look for inspiration 
beyond education. I'd love to just get a little window into how you think about stuff. You mentioned Kanye earlier, but I think lots of times when we have education conversations, it's almost too narrow a slice of our universes. And lots of times breakthrough innovations happen when something's borrowed from an adjacent space. Yeah. Outside of education, where do you go for inspiration? What's capturing your imagination? Most of what I do is writing and I consider writing as an art form in a way. And I think what makes art fun is being able to step back and also poke fun of yourself and what you're doing. And I would say like comedy is mm -hmm. one place where I draw inspiration. My wife and I listen to Conan O'Brien, long followers of his podcast. And recently he did his farewell show on TBS because he's moving to HBO. Mm -hmm. And in his closing monologue, he says something that really struck me, which is about how he described his life's work as pursuing this intersection between smart and stupid. These are two things that people don't think really coexist. When smart and stupid come together, sometimes it's the most like beautiful thing <laughs> like in the world. And that really resonated with me because I think in my work, I encounter certainly a lot of smart people in education and in and technology and the startup world who are truly making an impact on kids. But also being in the tech and venture space, I'm going to say there's plenty of obnoxiousness that kind of deserves to be made fun of. And I think that we should like embrace, you know, sometimes the silliness of what we do. So yeah. all that's to say, this is my twisted way of deriving joy in my day-to-day yeah. <laughs> -day work. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Tony Wan, thank you so much for joining us on Trending in Education. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure to be here. And I think you got to see more of my life and my work than I previously shared. Awesome. Hopefully uh, our listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. If you enjoy what you're hearing, write us a review, share the good word. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. <music>